Welcome to Radical Simple Living. This is Series 2, Episode 2. I'm a few days late with this podcast because I've had a bad throat and my voice has not been up to recording a podcast. My uh, voice has been so gravelly that it sounds more like uh, some late night DJ uh, somewhere. But it's on the mend, it's almost better, so here I am today talking about another aspect of simple living. And you have to have a warning at the start of this week's programme, because this is a a subject about which I could talk for weeks, uh, if not months, if not years. It's something I care a lot about and think a lot about and write a lot about and care a lot about. It's simple speech. Now, why simple speech? Well, I think in series one, the overall idea that uh, we were working towards is that radical simple living isn't just about making sourdough. It's not just about growing your own herbs in the windowsill. It's not about taking up your knitting needles. All of those things are part of simple living. I absolutely agree. But they're not all about simple living. Simple living, radical simple living, is one of these things that's going to affect every area of our lives. Why? Because that's how we hope to move forward to a simpler life that is going to help us and going to help our families and going to help the planet. Simple living is a whole package of vast numbers of different ideas. And today I want to talk about what happens when we open our mouths when we start to speak, when we say things to other people. Now, as you know, this uh, podcast is unscripted and because of that, two things happen. One is I make mistakes now and then and B, I can talk to you as though I was sitting in a room and you were on the other side of the table. I can do that because I'm using a fairly simple form of speech and sometimes we don't talk as simply as we could. Why not? Well, because we use speech for other things, don't we? If we want to show people how clever we are, we may use all kinds of long words in the hope that we might come across one that either they recognise and think, oh, here is somebody as clever as I am, or because they think, oh, here is somebody even cleverer than I am. So we use speech to show off quite a lot. We use words to show off. And if we're used to showing off on a regular basis, chances are that will affect the way we speak to everybody. So we we, we should be careful about that. And the other thing we do is we hide behind words. We will use words to show how knowledgeable we are, to show our trainings, show all sorts of of things that we, we don't always need to show. Now, I know before you all start shouting at your phone or your PC or whatever you're listening on, I know that we need technical speak. I know that whatever your profession is, whether you're a a dermatologist or a blacksmith or a tailor or a carpenter or an astronomer, you will need to use terms which may not be available to everybody. In particular, um, if you're talking about carpentry, you talk about something simple like a panel door and a frame that goes around it. 
There are dozens of words relating to that, which carpenters will know and uh, painters will know. And they will use these terms between each other, and that's fine. I'm not complaining about that. That's not a problem. What I'm talking about is the everyday speech that we communicate one with another. And I'm limiting this to English because this podcast is in English, which sort of suggests that people listening to it have an understanding of English. English may not be your first language. It may be something that you've developed either because you want to communicate with people all over the world or because you have found it necessary to get on. It's not the only language in the world. I realise that there are other languages, but English we're going to talk about today is a language that most of us listening to this podcast will be using all of the time or some of the time. And I'm going to turn first to Arthur Gish and Arthur Gish's book called Beyond the Rat Race. Now, I should just say about this book, when I first started recommending this book to people many years ago, you could buy a copy on Amazon for 99 pence plus postage. My copy of it, which I have here in front of me, is falling apart because I've used it so much. The pages are falling out and they're yellowing and I thought I'd go and see if I could find a new copy. It's not published in Europe, it's only published in North America. They now uh, seem to be selling for $78 is the cheapest price I could find um, for a second-hand edition of it. Now, what, what I would plea to somebody out there who's a publisher or who knows a publisher, please republish Arthur Gish's book Beyond the Rat Race. I, I, I will write a, a preface to it. It's happily explaining what a wonderful book it is, but it does need publishing republishing it does need publishing in Europe and in Australia in other parts of the world and New Zealand where other people are going to want it other than just the US and Canada and um, Arthur Gish has a chapter in this book all about speech and it's very very good and I could quote lots of it but the best thing you can do is go and read it there is a pdf version available online that you you do have to pay for but this is what Arthur Gish has to say, open quote. Tell it like it is. Don't use euphemisms. Don't say incursion when you mean invasion. Protective reaction when you mean hostile attack. Or peace when you mean war. Indeed, it's frightening to hear government officials speak and mean the opposite of what they say. There is far too much diplomacy and smooth talking. Uh, flattery and compliments can be a denial of simplicity. Just tell a person uh, that you expect love and care. Forget the jargon. We might excuse lovers and parents for cooing their baby from this, but no one else. In speech and in writing, state your case as clearly as possible. Never use a big word if a little word will say it. Big words and long words involved in arguments are not helpful. A truly educated person can state the most profound truths in such a way that an uneducated person can understand them. If you cannot state it simply, it may be that you don't really understand it. End of quote. I missed a little bit out in the middle there, as any aficionado will recognise, but you can read it yourself. I, 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 
I've edited it a little bit um, to get some salient points through. But the, the point that Arthur Gish makes is a very important one, and it's what we're going to talk about today. Simple speech. And above all, the job of simple speech is to make what you say clear and to avoid that terrible thing of being misunderstood. There's a wonderful record by Nina Simone of a song covered by lots of people called Oh Lord, Please Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. And being misunderstood is one of the things that's, that worries in life. Here, how many court cases have there been about somebody misunderstanding what somebody has said or somebody claiming that they meant one thing when the people listening heard something else? That's quite a difficult thing. So we want to talk today about simple speech. And I, as you may or may not know, I'm a Quaker. And Quakers have long been involved in something called plain speech. Now, plain speech is what many people think of as the and thou speech. It's using that form of English that was very common in the uh, 17th century, but has since fallen out of use. And a lot of people think Quakers do it. They say, oh, Quaker, I've seen it on the internet time and time again. People use this, uh, Quakers use this speech because it mimics the King James Bible. Well, it, that, that, that is just not true. The King James Bible um, has its origins in the 17th century, as do Quakers. But that's the only connection. The real reason Quakers use this speech is because it was a form of classless speech. To somebody who you felt subservient to, you would use words like thee and thou. And for somebody that was subservient to you, you would use the word you. So you would say to somebody who was socially above you, may I get the uh, drink? And somebody that was below you, you would say, uh, you get a drink. So th those two different kinds of speech existed. And what Quakers were trying to do was to level socially people. So you spoke to everybody the same. And that's when the thee and thou speech, the plain speech, came in. Now, it is opening a bit of a hornet's nest here, because if you look at what those early Quakers were saying, and if you quote them, what happens is somebody will sum up and say, well, that is grammatically incorrect. What they should have said is something else. And there are two points you can make here. One is that it was a long time ago and the rules of grammar weren't quite as solid in the 17th century as they became later on. There was no Fowler's English usage in those days. People spoke and if they were understood, they carried on speaking that way. And also there were regional variations and class variations, to be honest, in the way people used English, just as there are today. If you travel around a, a predominantly English-speaking area like North America or Australia or the, the UK and Ireland, you will find people not only differ in the words they use, but they will also differ in, in their grammatical form that they use. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. So the most famous Quaker short quote I can think of at this moment is from George Fox who was one of the early Quakers he wasn't the founder of Quakerism but he was certainly a founder of Quakerism and he said this wonderful quote be still and call in thy own mind repeat that 
be still and cool in thy own mind. And whenever I publish that, people say, oh no, what he should have said was, be still and cool in thine own mind. Well, that's what he said. He used the word thy, and I dare say that's what he meant to be said. So when you look at Quaker speech, don't please apply 18th and 19th grammarians rules to 17th century ordinary working class people's speech. Now, a lot of people think Quakers were the only people who used that form of speech, but they clearly were not. Listen to this and see if you can guess its origins. Here we go. The 18th century, maybe early 19th, I don't know the exact date. Give us grace, almighty Father, to address thee with all our hearts, as well as with our lips. Thou art everywhere present, and from thee no secrets can be hidden. Teach us to fix our thoughts on thee reverently with all our love, so that our prayers are not in vain, but acceptable to thee now and always through Jesus Christ our Lord. End of quote. Now you might think that was some Quaker uh, quote from the 17th century. In fact, it was from Jane Austen, who I believe to be a high Anglican. Um, and she was using that speech uh, a century later. And it, it wasn't considered Quaker speech. It was considered fairly devotional speech. So thee, thou, thy, all of these terms were in use selectively. The only thing that Quakers were doing was using them to everybody as a way of expressing equality. Now, those, those ideas are quite... Uh, are quite clear I think the most common question I'm ever asked as a Quaker is do Quakers still speak like that and the answer is yes conservative Quakers conservative when applied to Quakers has nothing to do with politics it's to do with whether they are really traditional Quakers going back to the traditional forms of worship and they do use uh, plain speech all the time when talking to one another when corresponding to one another. I use it when I'm corresponding with uh, conservative friends and they use it to me and people use it on Facebook and people use it in all sorts of places. So yeah, it is still used. So if you read on the internet that Quakers rejected that, well, some Quakers did, but many didn't and it is still there. Now, um, let's get on to what we say in terms of the words we say. Because I'm a great believer in um, not only plain speech, but simple speech. And some years ago, I read a book. It's now out of copyright. You can get it anywhere. It's from 1878. And it's called An Outline of English, English Speechcraft by William Barnes. It's probably had a bigger influence on me than, than, than on many people. But I, I, I do read it a lot and I use it a lot. And Barnes' point was that the English language has become covered in words that we don't really need because there are perfectly good words in English that we could use instead. And by using these more complicated words, we make life more difficult. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have words in English that aren't English because English is a mongrel language and there were vast numbers of words from all kinds of places. Uh, obviously, some of them are due to invasion of the of Britain by Romans and Saxons and Vikings and Normans 
And then we had a big Dutch influence after the Glorious Revolution. And we had a big French influence in the way people used to start picking up French words and bringing them into the language. And I'm not opposed to any of those things, but I am opposed to English words being totally displaced by a foreign word, or not a real foreign word, sometimes a made-up foreign word. And um, Barnes was, was concerned with this too. So what I'm going to give you is a list of, of modern... Very, there are thousands of these. These are examples of modern words and what we could say instead to make ourselves better understood. So here we go. Let's think of the word assist. May I assist you? May I offer you assistance? Why don't we say help? Can I help you? Plain English. More people are going to understand it. Children are going to understand it. Young people of all kinds are going to understand it. People whose English isn't very good are going to understand it if you say, can I help you, rather than can I assist you. More examples. Paternal. Had a paternal influence. Why don't we say fatherly? Why don't we say fatherly influence instead of paternal influence? Why don't we say my father's mother instead of my paternal grandmother? Infants. Why don't we say baby? Again, children and non-native speakers understand the word baby. The word infant, which obviously comes from Latin originally, doesn't add anything to the language. Medical terms are obviously a nightmare and doctors develop these using bits of Latin and Greek and French and heaven knows what else to try and sew together so they could give themselves a a way of talking to patients and b a patient was always happier if you went along and they, you gave them a Latin word for what they've got rather than an English word. But think of, uh, here's an example, trigeminal neuralgia. English word, faceache. Simple. Okay, so when you have medical terms, that's all right. But, in, you know, there's nothing wrong with English words like headache, tummy ache, faceache, backache, legache. I said backache twice. Yeah, never mind. But you get the idea. Sore throat, fine. But we have to develop that into laryngitis or pharyngitis or something like that. No, I haven't got laryngitis or pharyngitis. I've got a sore throat. I have actually, but that's beside the point. Also, some terms just irritate. The word Armageddon. Armageddon is something specific. What's wrong with end of days? You know, we're facing Armageddon here. We're facing the end of days here. In fact, the end of days is more stark because the word Armageddon is overused enormously in all kinds of things. As is the word Holocaust, which understandably we need a word that we use for the terrible atrocities of the Nazis against the Jews. So I'm quite happy with the use of the word Holocaust there. But the word Holocaust sort of, you know, there was a Holocaust at the airport. No, there wasn't. There was a strike at the airport, which meant lots of people got... You know, we, we use the word all the time, uh, and we shouldn't. It devalues it. That's the other thing that using difficult words to... It devalues things. Here's some others. Diary could be yearbook. Anniversary, Quakers use this. Year day. To predict, you could say foretell. And 
you can forecast things instead of having a prognosis, can't you? You can forecast it. I, I, I forecast is not I've got a prognosis. No, forecast is a much nicer word. And here we come across one that's, that's really an interesting one. It's the use of the French word mirror, which came in in the 19th century, instead of the term that had been used all the way through from Anglo-Saxon times, which was looking glass. Looking glass. What's wrong with looking glass? Alice in the Alice through the Looking Glass, 1871, that was published, I think, is much better title than Alice in the Mirror. That makes it sound like she's uh, appearing on uh, in a newspaper in the UK here. No, it's not right. I think the word mirror became popular because of Grimm's fairy tales, which became enormously popular in the English translation in the 19th century, both in the North America and in, in, in UK. And the Grimm brothers, of course, have this thing called mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And it doesn't work if you say looking glass, looking glass on the wall, who is the fairest? It does work, but it doesn't sound quite as hypnotic. So the word looking glass has fallen out of favour. And if you say looking glass to somebody, you know, people will know what you mean, but a lot of people won't because the word mirror has become all-embracing. And here's one I, I really like. There are thousands of these if you're interested. So, so do have a look at William Barnes' book. The word ostracise. I felt ostracised in this situation. The word unfriend was put as the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of ostracise. And we all know unfriending now because it happens on Facebook, doesn't it? People unfriend us occasionally, or we unfriend those. We don't, thankfully, ostracise people on Facebook. We unfriend them, and that's good. Now, the other thing is, of course, this wonderful word lore, L-O-R-E, which... Um, you know, if you remember in the Raven, the Agar and Poe thing, he was sitting up late reading a book of forgotten lore. And there is no better word for lore than the word lore. And yet so few of us use it. A lot of people get it confused with L-A-W and think it was reading a book about uh, forgotten legal practices. But no, lore means the study of, the knowledge of, the understanding of. And I'll give you just one example of how this could be simplified. The word ornithology could be called bird lore. Isn't that nice? Now, there are lots of these. There are lots of these. Um, do write to me about them. Uh, RadicalSimpleLiving at gmail.com is a good way to do it if you've got any other examples. But try and think about the words you use. And if you're happy using words like Armageddon and Paternal, that's fine, carry on using them. But if you would like to make your speech a little bit more simple, it could be that people will listen more carefully. Bob Dylan, who I'm a great fan of, was very good at using simple speech and there's that wonderful line uh, in sooner or later one of us for snow we where he says i couldn't hear what you were saying your scarf it kept your mouth well hid which i think is a wonderful a wonderful use of english poetic meaningful and totally understandable uh, in precise terms about what happened and what he was singing about so it's wonderful stuff
Let's move on a little bit, if we can, about our speech. We're talking about uh, the, the importance of understanding. We're talking about plain speech. We're talking about speechcraft, which is the name William Barnes gave to his um, ideas, an outline of English speechcraft. And the idea then was the craft bit means building up, building up what you say from its components in a thoughtful and constructive way. Let's talk a little bit about bad language. Let's talk a little bit about words that we either deliberately choose to use or we deliberately choose not to use or that sometimes we use very selectively. Now, there's lots of different terms, aren't there? One of them is swearing. And in English law, swearing means something using an oath incorrectly. And there's lots of swear words, and some of them have now become quite innocuous. The word blimey, which is what Cockneys say in Hollywood films, don't they? In Mary Poppins, they go, go blimey, Mary. And what it really means, it's a, it's a swear, because it is, may God blind me. Uh, and the word bloody, which also the English use a lot, was by my lady. So those are swear words. What most people mean by swear words are obscenities. And these are words which I'm not going to use here, don't worry. These are words, expletives, that people pepper their language with. Now, you may choose to use those or you may choose not to use those. But could I ask you, for the sake of simplicity, to consider your consistency? Do you choose your language for your audience? Well, all of us do. Yeah, I come from South London, a, a part of the world well known for its uh, native vocabulary. And if I were to get into the back of a cab and the driver were to come from South London, I would be speaking South London with that driver very readily. Uh, I would not expect to be using South London vernacular in a podcast that's going to be listened to all over the world because it wouldn't make sense. So we do selectively use language. And when it comes, the, the Americans have a nice word for obscenities and swearing. And also they call it cussing. And I, I think that's that's a nice term, cussing, cursing, that would be in formal English, um, as a way of describing all words which you would not use in polite company. People are setting up two kinds of standards. One, they will swear in front of their friends, but they won't swear in front of their family. They will swear at work, but they won't swear at home. Or school children, in the case of school children everywhere, will swear in the playground, but won't swear at the meal table. That, in a way, is, is, is fine. It's a double standard, I understand. But the thing you really cannot do, and I would, I would suggest this to you, if you are going to swear in front of your children, if you are going to use cussing words in front of your children and obscenities in front of your children, you are then on sticky ground if you tell your children they can't use it. So if you're um, using swear words, using obscenities, using cuss words at the meal table, and then your six-year-old or your 14-year-old decides to do the same thing, you are going to have a problem saying, no, you cannot say that. Or where did you learn language like that? Because they'll turn around and say, well, you just used it. So 
we have to set a standard and the easiest way to set this standard is try not to use these words. If your language is peppered with it, try and control it. See if you can go a week without doing it. Um, you may decide you don't want to. That's fine. I'm not forcing anybody into anything. Try getting a, a what used to be called a swear box where you had to put some coins in every time you use it. You'll be surprised how quickly you can drop it. You can drop it quickly because you don't swear in front of everybody. Um, I wish people wouldn't. I don't mind people swearing if they choose to do it. I don't like people swearing in public, in front of children, in front of elderly people that might be offended by it. So if you get into a train carriage or you get onto a bus and there's somebody swearing at the top of their voice, they are polluting the air. They are doing things that other people do not want to hear, saying things that other people do not want to hear. Watch your language. If you're in public, don't use cuss words, don't use swear. If you're on your own, you might want to consider whether it's a good thing to use them anyway. And generally speaking, I would say, if you do choose to use them, use them selectively to emphasise points realistically rather than peppering your everyday speech with it. We all know that when you weren't allowed to swear in films or on television, lots of words were invented um, to cover it up, to use another word instead. And there's dozens of these which in a way have become cussing themselves because everybody uses them so much. And my favourite one is from a wonderful film that went by several different titles. It was sometimes called All That Money Can Buy or Daniel and the Devil uh, or The Devil and Daniel Webster. Those three titles, I think it failed under all three titles, but in my book it's one of the most impressive bits of cinema I've ever seen in my life. I think it's absolutely wonderful. And the main character in that, who is a hapless farmer, uses the term concern it when things go wrong. So when a bag, a sack of wheat breaks on the way to the barn, he shouts out, concern it, which got him past the um, the censor at the time. Everybody knew he was cussing, but it was a word that wasn't formally known as a cuss word. And I have been known to utter that word when I hit my thumb with a hammer. Concern it. And, you know, it's okay. Right. Um, thank you for listening. I hope that uh, I've given you some food for thought and I hope you can get back to me with some comments. Do, um, if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe to it. Do if you like what I have to say or if you disagree absolutely with what I have to say, do send it to people that you think might be interested either in agreeing or disagreeing with what I say. I don't mind. I don't get on social media much, but when I do, I publicise this. If you're on social media and you know people that might be interested, do give me a plug. I will be most grateful to you. And uh, I hope to see you again very, very soon. Thank you. Bye for now.